Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them with me once again for the third time uh, to the book of Jonah. To the book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets. If you're visiting with us this morning, the bulletin insert contains the passage that I'll be reading this morning. Also, I invite you to grab a a, a Bible on the back table. Uh, There are a couple available for you that you can uh, take if you don't own a copy of God's Word, but at least follow along this morning as we open up the Scriptures together. Jonah's been a fun book for me to preach. I hope it's been a good book for you to hear. It is an exciting story. A story of a runaway preacher and a big fish. It doesn't get any better than that. But more than that, as I prayed, Jonah is a story of God's pursuing compassion and extravagant grace. And oh, how our hearts need to hear that every week. Last week, we left our character Jonah with these words rolling off of his lips and and ringing in our ears. Salvation belongs to the Lord was his declaration. We were reminded that it is His sovereign grace. It is God's sovereign grace that initiates. It is His living Word that sustains us as it sustained Jonah in the belly of a fish. And here's that elusive third sub-point. It was that same grace that assures us of eternal life. That assures us that He will bring it to completion. Well, this morning as Jonah's journey continues, we come to an episode, a scene in this story, which in many ways is even more spectacular than last week. Than Jonah being in the belly of a fish for three days. And so listen as I read Jonah chapter 3. We'll start at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah... The second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. In 1936, a man by the name of Dale Carnegie wrote what was, or what would become, one of the first and best selling self help books of all time. Some of you may know it, some of you may have read it. The title was How to Win Friends and Influence People. One of the sections of that book is titled, Fundamental Techniques in Handling People. And as Dale Carnegie talks about those techniques, they really can be summarized in just three points. And they're these three points. Number one, don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Number two, give honest and sincere appreciation. And number three, Arouse in the person an eager want. What do you think? Pretty good advice? Sounds okay? Sounds just like our man Jonah, right? No! Of course it doesn't sound like Jonah. It's exactly the opposite of our main character, Jonah. Jonah wasn't out to win friends in Nineveh. He really didn't care about influencing the people of Nineveh. And his doing the exact opposite as he is obedient to the command of the Lord illustrates this fact. His message was one of condemnation. That was all it was. He appreciated nothing about them. And as far as arousing in the person an eager want, well, Jonah gave the people of Nineveh absolutely no hope. So he should have been, according to Dale Carnegie, he should have been an abject failure. To be honest, I think Jonah was probably, at least as we have gotten to know Jonah, as we will see him in the next chapter, I think Jonah was probably hoping that he would be a failure as he went to Nineveh and proclaimed what God told him to proclaim to them. And yet, despite this, something amazing happens in chapter 3. Something amazing happens in this story. Today as we walk through this passage, I want to do so using two truths that we can meditate on and be reminded of. Two truths that can be seen first in Jonah, then in Nineveh, and then they apply to us. Two truths, having first to do with Jonah, then Nineveh, and then they apply to us. And the first one is this. It is the power of God's Word that brings life. It is the power of God's Word that brings life. Something powerful, something incredible happens here in Nineveh. With that, there can be no doubt about that. But it's not something that Jonah can be hoisted on 
the, the shoulders of the people of Nineveh for or given a key to the city. It's not something that Nineveh as a city can take great pride in. It's all the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's all Him and it's all His Word. And what I want you to see is it's His Word that takes center stage once again here in chapter 3 of the book of Jonah. It was a theme that pervaded His prayer that He prayed in the belly of the fish. And now it comes and becomes the focus of the next. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah. He arose and went according to the Word of the Lord. See, as we look at this passage, it comes first. We see this life-giving power of the Word first in Jonah himself. In the life of our runaway prophet. Verse 3 makes no qualms about it. Jonah is finally submitting. At last, he is submitting. It's a word of power. It's a word that brings life. The power of God's Word had been working in Jonah's life way before this second commission of the Lord. It was the power of the Word that hurled the sea into chaos, resulting in Jonah being thrown overboard. It was a Word from God that commanded, that appointed this fish to swallow the runaway prophet, that God might deal with him in darkness and in solitude. And now a Word comes directly to Jonah once again. You see, it's only because of the power of God's Word that Jonah is even alive. And we marvel, at least we should marvel, that here Jonah stands before the Lord after being vomited out on the shore from the belly of a fish, and he's given a second chance. He's given a new opportunity and God's grace comes once again to commission him. And it shows us something, I think, about the character and the intention of God. God could have given up on this preacher. In fact, in, in our book, He probably should have given up on Jonah. If you, don't, if, if you want to get a mission accomplished, you don't put back in charge the guy who just tucked his tail and ran the other way. You find someone else. Someone with the gifts. Someone with the courage to get the job done. But it's a reminder to us this morning that God is not just concerned about accomplishing the mission. He is concerned about equipping the missionary. Let me repeat that because that's a good truth. God is not just concerned about accomplishing the mission, the mission but He is concerned about equipping the missionary, with molding him or her into what he desires that they be. And so, by, by, bolstered by all the words that have come to him, the word that cast the sea into chaos and threw him overboard, the word that brought him to this shore, Jonah receives a new command. A new command that is really the same command. In the words of verse 
2 of chapter 3 finally break through the heart of Jonah. The power of God's word brings life. Surely as Jonah will confess in just the next chapter, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But it's not just Jonah. It's not just Jonah who receives the power of God's Word, who is carried by the power of God's Word, who is given new life and a new beginning by the power of God's Word. It's this city, this great city in size, and this great city in wickedness. Think about it. This day was like any other day in Nineveh, I suspect. People woke up. They went to work. They went to work blinded by their sin, content in their idolatry. About 120,000 people. A good-sized city. And Jonah comes into town and like a flood of light, rushing into that city, the lights come on. And for the first time, they see themselves as they truly are. They see God as He truly is. And they believed. And we say, wow, how in the world did that happen? And you notice, Jonah didn't come out of the belly of the fish. At least the Scriptures don't tell us this. And I think it's safe to assume he didn't come out of the belly of the fish all fired up charged up, ready to proclaim the grace of God that he had just experienced firsthand. No, one actually wonders whether he had hoped that being vomited on the shore was the end of it. Whew! God has saved me. He's obviously found someone else. That was awful, but I'm thankful to have it behind me. But no. God hadn't given up on him. God says, go and proclaim what I told you to proclaim. And so he goes and he proclaims. And he proclaims one thing. Destruction. Did you notice that? He proclaims one thing. Five Hebrew words. I've never done this before. You ready for this? Od Arbim Yom Veninava Nechpachet. Od Arbim Yom Veninave Nechpachet. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's not exactly an oratory masterpiece, is it? It's not exactly a message of hope and grace and new beginnings, and second chances. No, it's essentially T-40 days. Now, did Jonah say more? Well, we don't know. He may have. He may not have. I actually think he probably didn't say more. Because I think that at this point, Jonah is maybe no longer a runaway prophet, but Jonah is still at this point a reluctant prophet. The next chapter will confirm this. And yet, despite this this angry oracle, if we can call it that, what happens? Possibly the greatest mass conversion in history. 
It's the power of God's Word that brings life. You see, God wanted Jonah. Oh, He wanted this man. That much is obvious. The lengths that He was willing to go to to equip this missionary. And God wanted this city too. Verse 3 says, it's a great city. But that verse can actually be translated, that Hebrew phrase can actually be translated, it's a great city to God. It's a great city to God. It's one that He wanted and nothing would frustrate His purposes. Not a runaway prophet, not a city full of hardened people living in darkness. His will would be done by the power of His Word no matter what. And so what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with you and me? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're searching for answers. Maybe you're here this morning and you're searching for God. If so, this is a story for you. It's for you because this story is not just a fun story. This story, the Bible says, was a sign of things to come. And for us here in 2013, it's a sign of things that have already come. Yes, this is a story of Jonah, a Hebrew, put to death in the belly of a fish for three days only to be risen from the dead, vomited on the shore in order to do what? To proclaim a word that would save a city full of those who walked in darkness. And yes, if you sit here this morning, Jonah didn't do that for you. You're not a Ninevite. But the good news that we celebrate this morning is there was another Hebrew that did. Jesus of Nazareth was put to death. He was in the tomb, really dead, for three days, only to be risen to life in order to proclaim to us a Word that would save those who walked in darkness. And this is God's way. Suffering to glory. Weakness giving rise to strength. And so if you've never embraced Jesus, and you're sitting here this morning, let this power, let the power of this Word do its work and prove itself today in your life. Because today is the day of salvation. Let the sign of Nineveh, as it's called, Let the repentance of Nineveh be yours. We all need to hear that. I need to hear that. But I know that many of you are here and you love Jesus and you have loved Him long and though the Gospel is sweet to your ears every Lord's Day, this passage applies to you in another way as well, I think. Because as we couple Joseph's, or excuse me, Jonah's weakness with the result of his ministry, the inadequacy of his message with the power of the result, what does this remind us of? It's a wonderful reminder to us that God loves to use the broken. He loves to use the inadequate to do His work. Those who don't have it all together. Paul said to Corinth, God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
in the world. And I know that all of you in here are not preachers. You're not called to be preachers. You're not natural evangelists. Some of you are terrible introverts, and that's okay. God made you that way, and yet we are all either parents or Christians in the marketplace. Those called to be used by God to give testimony to the hope that lies within. See, I need this. I feel weak a lot. I feel reluctant at times. And Jonah 3 reminds me that it's not about me. It's about the power of the Word that I proclaim. It's about the power of the presence of God who walks with His people. One of the verses, one of the passages that has encouraged me as of late is the call of Gideon in Judges 6. Where God says, save Israel from Midian, Gideon. Do it. And Gideon says, no, Lord. I am from the weakest clan. I can't do that. And what does the Lord do? Does He say, well, I will give you all the gifts that you need, or you are missing that you actually have these gifts, and you have the power of persuasion. No, He doesn't say anything except, I will be with you. My presence will go with you. The power is in my Word. Not only that, but I think there's an application for us Reformed folk. Yes, the Reformed folk. I think Jonah 3 is a reminder that God uses those who don't have all the same methodology as we those who don't have all of their theological ducks in a row like we think they ought to have. And yet God uses them because it's His Word that holds the power. In one of my former seminary classrooms, in one of Mike's present seminary classrooms, Jonah's message to Nineveh would invite much criticism as a sermon. And yet Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, God's Word here in Jonah 3 prods us to humble confidence. Humble confidence. Jonah shouldn't have been effective. We shouldn't be effective. And yet, God uses and molds weak vessels, giving us a message, entrusting to us a message that gives life. And brothers and sisters, we are not powerless Paul told the church at Rome that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And if Jonah's message of condemnation brought this, how much more will a message of hope and grace and life? 
How much more fruit will it bring? Be assured that the power resides in the Word. Well, that's the first thing I want us to see. The second truth from this passage that I want us to see and consider for just a few moments is this. God doesn't change, but His words but His Word demands we change. God doesn't change, but His Word demands that we change. Parents, have you ever tried to explain something to your kids that they just don't have categories to understand? I was racking my brain Trying, I've been racking my brain trying. I know I did this with my kids just in the past week, and I could not remember what I said. But they were trying to understand something, and so to order, in order to explain it to them, you have to bring it into their world. You have to bring it to them in categories that they can understand as a six, as a seven, uh, as a, as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as an eight-year-old. And so we say things like, it's like such and such. I'm sure many of you have had that experience. Well, there is a potential misunderstanding in our passage this morning. In Jonah chapter 3, it comes at the very end, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. If we have any King James Version folks out there, that version adds another level of confusion because it actually translates the Hebrew as God repented. Either way you translate it, relented, God relented, or God repented, there is a perception that God changed His mind. And we, those of us who know the Scriptures, say, how can that be? Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. And James teaches the church in James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift is come is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so which is it, we say? Well, it's an opportunity for us to give a lesson in how Scripture sometimes works. See, God is the Creator. We are the creatures. There is an unmeasurable gap between God and we. And an uncrossable chasm were it not for God's voluntary condescension to us. And here in Jonah chapter 3, that's exactly what God is doing. He is condescending to us. John Calvin, the great reformer, spoke about this passage, spoke about what it is describing God as doing as baby talk. This is baby talk. You see, the Scriptures sometimes speak to us about God in analogical discourse, in categories that we can understand, that we can relate to. And that's exactly what's happening here. And that's important. It's kind of a very academic thing to talk about for five minutes, but it's important. It's important because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. 
Because we need to know that God's Word is true and trustworthy and doesn't change and remains the same. That when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Me, that God is not going to change His mind about that sometime later down the road. No, what He says He will do, He will do. God doesn't change. But the second half of that truth is, but His Word demands that we do. And we can't miss that part of this passage. If we go back to Jonah's commissioning, it's interesting, I'm sure you notice this, those of you who are here for weeks one and two and three, one and two, that verses one and two of chapter three closely parallel the opening verses of this book. Jonah, as I said earlier, he probably hoped that when God came to speak to him again, that God was going to say, Jonah, I found someone better. I decided to have mercy on you and save your life, but I found someone better to do the job at hand. Jonah had hoped that God's directive would change, but it didn't change. God didn't chart a new strategy. He didn't soften His words. There was no bargaining. There was no compromise. It was still, go and preach to Nineveh. See, God doesn't change. His demands don't change. It is we that need to change. And Jonah's getting there. He obeys God. He goes. But as we're going to be reminded of next week, he is still a reluctant prophet. He is still, in many ways, a work in progress. But what about Nineveh? What about Nineveh? Well, bottom line, Nineveh was essentially putting on a clinic for God's people on repentance. This was a display of response that only the supernatural power of God could bring about. We read in Amos earlier how God's stubborn people had become, how they were unwilling to change, and yet in God's mercy, He chooses to display the glories of what His powerful Word can do through the lives of these pagan people. And this may have even been hinted at in Jonah's short five-word message. The Hebrew word that's translated as overturn can certainly mean overturn in the sense of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the sense that that city was overturned, but it can also mean turn around, as in a chariot turns around and goes in the other direction, and isn't that what the core of repentance is? turning around and and going the other way. Jonah, unintentionally on his part, I'm sure, but according to the divine decree of God, predicted this citywide change of heart. And we know that something significant, that something real happened here in Nineveh. Yes, we know from history that Nineveh will eventually return to its wicked and evil and violent ways, but we know at least for this generation, it was real 
what happened to them was real. And how do we know that? Because Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment to condemn the generation to which Jesus spoke. You see, the people of Nineveh were saved. They were changed at the very core of who they were. And how did this change come about? Well, one writer writes about what happens in Nineveh and he divides it into three different things. After their eyes were opened, that flood of light that brought initial life, they were convicted. They saw their spiritual danger. They, they saw through the message of destruction, you bet they saw what was coming to them. But not only that, there was spiritual mourning. There was godly sorrow that Paul talks about to the Corinthian church. And this godly sorrow shows itself in in, in sackcloth going on man and beast. Ashes, a sign of man's frailty being displayed. All these ancient symbols of mourning and deep grief. And then faith. They believed. They believed God. And we say, oh, well, they didn't understand. And there's no doubt that their faith was not as robust as it could have been. There was no doubt that their faith was small and uninformed, and yet, it was like a child. It was like childlike trust and dependence. The exact kind of faith that God calls His people too. What a wonderful picture of the change that takes place in the people of Nineveh. Well, as we close, let me just say two things, two more challenges to us. And the first thing is, you know, seeing this picture of this city bowing to the one true God, bending the knee, turning from its wicked ways. That coupled with the fact that the power of God's Word is what brought this about. Not the oratory masterpiece of a stellar prophet. we got to ask ourselves, do we believe this could happen? Do we long for this to happen? In our families, in our communities, in our cities, in our nations, do we pray to that end? Oh, I think we should. God, may Your Spirit and Your Word move in such a way in our midst that this kind of thing could happen in our generation before our eyes. Or maybe we're just too busy. Maybe we should just hunker down and get comfortable and ride it out. No! We should long for this. That's the first challenge. The second challenge, I think, and the second truth is simply, is the Word changing us? Are we letting the Word have its effect on us? Do we spend our weeks cracking our Bibles and our weekends letting God's Word go in one ear and out the other? God's Word is given that you might be changed. That you might know Him. 
that you might know yourself. Not interesting facts about him, not theological riddles about him, but that you might know him. When was the last time you mourned over your sin? Maybe not with those ancient symbols, but really mourned over your sin and cried out that God's Spirit would search your heart and show every dark, ugly place. See, this is a challenge to us. God's Word demanded change, and Nineveh changed. Well, Dale Carnegie may have had some good things to say, maybe some good common grace insights, but I contend to you that his wisdom was wisdom of the world, and so generously speaking, it's weakness compared to the wisdom from God. God has given His Word. It is that Word that brings life. It is that Word that doesn't change. But yes, that Word ought to change us. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for these truths from the book of Jonah this morning. Even as we think about that very last challenge that we ought to be changed by the Word. May we go from this place with that truth impressed upon our hearts by the power of Your Spirit and wrestling with that very thing. How ought we to change? How ought we to bow? How ought we to mourn? Father, what a joy to be reminded of the Gospel. What a joy to be reminded of the power of the Word, of the joy and the delight that You receive in using weakness to show Yourself strong. Continue to use us. Continue to assure us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.